0: Uh, Today is the second in uh, a series. We'll probably be on this series for probably a couple of months at least. And uh, the series entitled Legacy. Now, many people, when you think of legacy, you think in terms of property or money or material possessions um, given in a will. But we are talking of not of that kind of legacy. The legacy that we are speaking of is a kind of legacy which is far more important than that. Last week I said that it is not what we leave for others that matters, but what we leave in others that matters most. And that is absolutely key in our thinking. And I think the challenge of this series is what is my legacy? What what is our legacy together? In which way is my time on earth affecting the lives of other people? What will live on? from my life after my life is over and these are the kind of questions that we're going to be asking ourselves over a number of weeks Um, each week we are going to be looking at a hero of the faith men and women who have uh, lived before us most of them at least um, some of them many hundreds of years ago some of the people that we'll be looking at they uh, they've done great things for god many of them Uh, Some of them you might have heard of, others you might not have heard of, but whose lives nevertheless have affected our lives today. But we're not just doing a history lesson. This isn't just about looking at the past and looking at one or two people from history. But what we are doing is then looking at the scriptures together and uh, finding out what the scriptures have to say about the legacy that has been left. And then... And then, very importantly, we're challenging ourselves over our legacy. Uh, Last week we started off and we observed the the life of William Tyndale, uh, a man who translated the Bible into English, whose life and work and ministry has had a major impact on Western Christianity, and ultimately upon our lives as well today. Tyndall's most famous words were in response to a clergyman uh, who told Tyndall that the laws of the Pope were more important than God's laws. And as we said last week that that utterly infuriated Tyndall, and um, he famously replied, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spares me, I will cause the boy that drives the plough to know more of the scriptures than you. What a great, I said last week, what a great response, fighting talk. And uh, Tyndale's legacy was, uh, of of which we are all beneficiaries, was the English Bible, which made God's word accessible to everyone, from the King of England, from the monarch, all the way through to the the lowest of the low, the boy who uh, drives the plow. Right, well, this week, we've got another hero of faith. (coughs) I asked the question last week, how many of you had known, uh, heard of William Tyndale? How many of you know of William Carey? Put your hands up if you, how many of you have never heard of William Carey? Oh, I think it's actually this week, slightly more have heard of this this man than not heard. Okay, let's see if I can fill in some of the gaps for you. William Carey lived uh, best part of 300 years after Tyndale, the guy that we looked at last week. I was active in ministry in the late 18th century and early 19th century, about 200 years ago. So what do we know of him? Well, as Dan said at the start of the service, a bit of a spoiler that I thought, I'll have a word with him. (laughs) That William Carey is known as the father of modern missions. And his, his is a fascinating story. Whenever I personally think of Carey, I think of the words of the Apostle Paul to... Uh, the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul says that God chooses the foolish uh, people of this world in order to shame those who think that they are wise. And that God chooses the the weak people of this world to shame the strong and the powerful. And uh, William Carey, in some regards, didn't have a huge amount going for him. At the age of 12, he left schooling Um, He initially worked as a gardener and then as a cobbler's apprentice. So, educationally, this man was unqualified. But the one thing that he had in his favour, he was a voracious reader and he became interested in literature of other lands. And then after a while, he became very concerned for the salvation of these people that he was reading about. He recognised his own um, academic limitations and often called himself a plodder. Very often he said, I am a plodder. What a way to speak of yourself, yes? And probably some of us might be able to relate to that. I am a plodder. Well, he was an amazing plodder because uh, shortly after he came to faith in an Anglican church, uh, he borrowed a book on Greek grammar and taught himself New Testament Greek. He continued in his language studies, learning Hebrew, the language of the Old Testament, Latin, French, Italian, Dutch. That's more than you, James, isn't it? Because <laughs> <laughs> I know you speak many, many languages. And then he became a Baptist pastor uh, and served in Malta near Kettering. At a meeting of Baptist leaders in the year 1792, uh, not long after William Carey had been ordained. Um, he stood up in this gathering of of church ministers to argue the value of overseas mission. Now, we've heard about that, haven't we, today from Jackie? But uh, here was William Carey, newly ordained, stood up in this meeting to argue that uh, the gospel should be going overseas. And as he was bringing his argument, he was very rudely interrupted by an older senior minister who says, Young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. <laughs> when God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without consulting you or me. Well, Kerry, as you can well imagine, was utterly dismayed by this. The sheer lack of interest that was shown by his fellow clergymen. And he argued that the Great Commission, the words that Dan read to us earlier, uh, of going into all the world and proclaiming the gospel to all creation, not only applied to the original 12 disciples, but applies to believers down through the ages of every place and every, um, of, of every age. And uh, Kerry went on to say that those who want to claim the comforts and promises of the New Testament must also accept the commands given there, such as this one. Shortly afterwards, um, William Carey was asked to preach a sermon to the Northampton Association of Particular Baptists. It's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? (laughs) Much easier to say Elim. And he preached in this uh, gathering a very famous sermon. Um, The verse is probably known to many of us, and it's from Isaiah 54. Verses 2 and 3. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your... Tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations. And settle in their desolate cities. And he used this particular sermon. To challenge Christians. To expand the territory of the kingdom of God. By taking the gospel to other lands. And um, on a number of occasions in this particular, which is now famous sermon, he used a saying which we often quote, and you've heard me quote this many, many, many times here from the front of the church. And he said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God, which became his most well-known, well-famous saying. Later that year, in October 1792, a group of twelve plas- pastors, pastors, pastors uh, formed a missionary society, which they named. Wait for it. Get ready for this. Brace yourself. The particular Baptist Society for propagating the gospel among the heathen. They were very much into catchy titles in those days. You know, sound bites. Does any of you know what that was actually reduced to and called? Yes, somebody said it. BMS, that's right. Which stands for? Baptist Missionary Society. Baptist Missionary Society. It's great to have one educated person in the church, <laughs> isn't it, really? That's wonderful. That's a pub quiz, <laughs> that's a pub quiz. okay. <laughs> okay. So that's, that's the level that we're talking, all right, okay. And um, the BMS is a society that uh, Kerry and his mates uh, uh, started up two, 200 years ago now. 200 years ago this year, actually and um, it was really about serving God in a more holistic way not just evangelizing and planting churches but also helping the poor to experience uh, economic sustainable well-being and, and to access education and that model of missions work is exactly what we were hearing this morning from Jackie isn't it you know the bible studies the conventions the conferences The the, the praying with people, but also rolling up your sleeves and getting stuck in to bring aid where we possibly can. But the BMS today is training doctors, treating patients, fighting injustice, training leaders, responding to disasters and advocating uh, for those who don't have a voice in this world. Following year, uh, June 1793, William, uh, his wife Dorothy really interesting actually you know here was this man who speak all these languages but his wife was illiterate and on their marriage certificate she just put a crude cross very interesting that William his wife Dorothy her sister Kitty they had four young children in addition in addition to that there was another missionary um, a surgeon by the name of John Thomas his wife and daughter set sail for India and uh, William had very much underestimated uh, how tough life was going to be out there and the early years in India for William Carey were times of real hardship. Um, He contracted malaria. His son Peter age five died of dysentery. His wife, who had a poor mental state anyway, deteriorated further, and she started suffering from delusions, accusing him of adultery and threatening him with a knife. And to top it all, his fellow missionary, John Thomas, uh, proved to be very unreliable and squandered all the money. And at this time, William Carey wrote to a friend with these words. I am in a strange land, alone, no Christian friend, a large family, and nothing to supply their wants. And yet amazingly, despite it all, his faith did not waver. And another, of one of his, another one of his great sayings was this, the future is as bright as the promises of God. Now I've heard one or two of you say that. I don't know if, you've, uh, if you knew that it was Kerry who said it first, but what a great saying. What a great truth. And it may be this morning that you are going through troubles and heartache and hardship And you might feel as if the trials of life are really getting you down and crushing you at the moment. Maybe you feel that you're in a bit of a dark place. Well, I would say to you this morning, take encouragement, that the future is as bright as the promises of God. God is still on the throne. Remember Job, he lost everything. He lost his family, his wealth, his health. And yet he was still able to say, I know that my Redeemer lives. In 1799, uh, things turned a little bit better for William Carey as he was uh, joined by some other more reliable missionaries. The following year, in December 1800, seven years after he started this mission's work, William baptised his first convert. Oh, can you just imagine that? You know, you're in this place, you're going through all the stuff that he's gone through, the sheer persistence and perseverance of the man after seven years, his first convert. And two months later, he published his first Bengali New Testament. In 1803, there were 25 Indian nationals who had been baptised. By the year 1821, Carey and his team had baptised 1,407 people. Just as a point of interest, what, what caused that that turnabout in what he was doing and it was because he changed his emphasis in what he was preaching. He had previously been preaching very much against Hinduism, all the wrongs and the evils and he started preaching and declaring more so the cross of Christ and he saw a huge, huge turnaround. Most of his time he he devoted to translation work but he did other things as well. He planted 26 churches and 126 schools. How are you getting these figures? It's just... He translated the Bible into 44 languages. He also started Medical Mission Savings Bank, a seminary for training Christian leaders, a girls' school, and a Bengali language newspaper. Not bad for a guy who left school at 12 with no formal education, don't you think? astonishing in 1819 200 years ago he established the Serampore College for Indian students with the aim of training Indians to evangelize their own countrymen and that became India's very first uh, university offering uh, degrees and that's still in existence there today with over two and a half thousand students beyond his work his Bible work, he was also a man who was a, a social reformer within the country. Strongly opposed, as you would imagine, for any person who was a Christian, or any, any, any person, strongly opposed uh, to in, infanticide. Because often children were sacrificed to the various gods. He was a voice for the voiceless, he stood against child prostitution and assisted suicide. And he supported many of the Indian reformers as well to ban Sati. Do you know what Sati is? Some of you do. Sati, uh, a terrible practice in those days of burning a widow alive on her husband's funeral pyre. But Kerry's greatest legacy was really in worldwide missions work that he's inspired. And um, soon after Kerry went to India with his family, various other missionary societies were established. The London Missionary Society, the British and Foreign Bible Society, the Church Mission Society. Um, many people who, in terms of missions work, are household names. They were so inspired by him that they also went out. People like Adoniram Judson and David Livingstone, I'm sure you've heard of him, and um, Hudson Taylor, and of course, Jackie Griffiths. That's a little bit tongue-in-cheek but not entirely because uh, Jackie you might not be directly inspired uh, by Kerry, you might be I don't know but I'm sure that indirectly you have been inspired by what he has left and the legacy that he has um, brought into this world. And his legacy is really going into the nations of the world. Expecting great things from God and attempting great things for God. Here endeth the history part of my talk. Our English word mission comes from the Latin word missio, which means to send. And we could say that God was the first missionary. He sent his son into the world, but it doesn't stop there. Because Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. In other words, he is saying, my mission is also your mission. As we read the gospel, we can observe that uh, Jesus clearly understood what his mission was on earth. At the age of 12, Jesus um, said to his mother when she witnessed him debating with the rabbis in Jerusalem, he said, I must be about my father's business. And then 21 years later, with Jesus dying on the cross, he cried out, It is finished. (coughs) Meaning the work that the Father had given him to do on earth has finished. And those two statements are a little bit like bookends that speak of Jesus' own consciousness of mission. Throughout his life, we can read that Jesus had this divine awareness of mission. He said such things as, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And God sent his Son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. And then on one occasion, Jesus explained to his disciples that my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. There was a deep sense of realisation that he was on a mission sent by his Father. And what we see in Jesus, we also see in the Apostle Paul, when he was saying farewell to the Ephesian elders, they'd been in Ephesus for a while. This is what he says in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. My life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus. What is that? Tell us, Paul. The work of telling others the good news about the grace of God. So Christ's mission is now our mission. And Jesus calls us not only to come to him, but also to go for him. One of the verses that meant so much to uh, William Carey was the verse found in Matthew chapter 28. Dan read it to us earlier on, verses 19 and 20. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And um, as I said a little bit earlier, Carey believed that this commission was not just for the original 12 disciples, but it was a, a commission for every Christian of every place and every generation. The words of Jesus that we've got up there on screen are often referred to as the Great Commission. Not the great suggestion. <laughs> okay. Again, the last words recorded of Jesus on earth before he ascended into heaven are found in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my what? My witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, Now, in this one verse in the beginning of this book of Acts, and the book of Acts, if you've not read it, is like a a history book of the early church. The earliest Christians and their escapades are talked about in there, in 28 chapters. And in chapter 1, we are told that from Jesus, from the lips of the Lord, that um, they were to receive the power of the Holy Spirit to go out into the the highways and byways and to take the gospel far and wide. And for the next 27 chapters of Acts, we read uh, of how the first century Christians fulfilled the words of Jesus and took the message from Jerusalem through into Judea, Samaria. By the time we get to Acts chapter 28, we find that the gospel is in Rome. Lots of uh, newly founded congregations in larger cities and so on and so forth. I don't know about you, I find it exciting reading. And I thank God for these earliest Christians. I thank God for these earliest Christians who were empowered by the Spirit and who were outward looking. I thank God that they didn't decide to keep all the blessings for themselves. Like many of those church leaders did in William Carey's day but they were willing to take that life-transforming message to others, to the world at large, at great cost to themselves, and many of them um, suffered greatly in persecution and they they gave their lives, slaughtered by the Roman authorities for not bowing the knee to Caesar and pronouncing that Caesar was Lord. The Christian message was entrusted to 12 men and today there are about 2 billion 2 billion people on earth who call on the name of Jesus. <coughs> Tony Morgan is a church consultant and blogger that I came across and uh, captured my attention. i I'll just read to you what he wrote. He said this, Over several years, I've worked with church leaders from close to 200 different churches in consulting and coaching relationships. These churches are all different shapes and sizes there are denominational and non denominational churches, traditional and contemporary churches, small churches and mega churches, church plants and churches that have existed for over a hundred years. After working with all those churches, though, this is probably the key distinguishing factor when it comes to the health of the church it's whether the church is outward focused or inward focused. Catch that for a moment. I think we're being told something really, really, really important here. The key distinguishing factor in a church's health is not whether that church is Pentecostal or Anglican or Baptist or free or Methodist. It's not whether they sing new songs, hill songs and worship central rather than the old Songs, the great hymns. It's not whether the church meets in a a building which they call their, their, their church building or whether they meet in a school. It's not whether they have video projection or hymn books. But the one thing that would distinguish a healthy church from an unhealthy church is whether it is inward or outward focused. Is it self serving or is it focused on people who are outside its membership? Or to put it another way, is it mission focused or maintenance focused? There's an old, old Amish proverb which says, The man who rows the boat seldom has time to rock it. In other words, The person who is serving God and using his or her life to reach out to meet the physical, emotional, spiritual needs of others will not have the time or the energy or the desire to major in minors, to nitpick and to have squabble over issues which are of no real consequence. That man or woman will be motivated to keep the main thing, the main thing. Matthew tells us chapter 9 that Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. That challenge... Of the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few still remained in Carey's day and it still remains today 2,000 years on. You see, you personally might not have been called by God to up sticks and take your family to some far-flung part of the world to share the news of Jesus. But we're all called to take this message of Christ to others, to those that God has placed us amongst. William Carey is an incredible man. It would have been so easy for him to have lost heart, to have been paralysed with fear, to have thought of a dozen reasons why he could not have served the purposes of God in his own day. He was educationally unqualified, having left school at the age of 12. He was initially refused ordination and needed to reapply two years later. He had these terrible difficulties through the death of his young son, his wife becoming insane, his missionary partner squandering all the money. He could have said, hey, this is, it's just too hard. I'm off home. He could have felt overwhelmed by that culture, that practice infanticide and child prostitution and the burning of widows alive, thinking, I cannot do anything at all here to change this culture. He could have done all of that, but he didn't. Another one of Carey's famous sayings was this. I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. I'd not come across that one until this week, until I was doing some reading about uh, the life of William Carey. And I thought, whoa! <laughs> this is, this is incredibly. It's so profound. And I put it in your life group notes to discuss that one this week as well. You'll enjoy that one. Think about it. It's an incredibly profound statement. What am I successful at? What are you successful at? Is it something in the big scheme of things that's really not that important? Wow. Kerry recognised that uh, even though he was deficient, his Lord was all-sufficient and that God chooses the weak and foolish things of this world. On Friday, um, I was doing some preparation, actually, for this, and I, I think I took a coffee break, and I decided to sort of pick up my, uh, my phone and uh, had a quick look on Facebook, as you tend to do. I don't do it very often, but I did on Friday, and there was a post there of a friend of mine, his name is uh, John Bullock, married to Debbie, put a photograph of them on screen there for you to know who I'm talking about. And um, this weekend he was um, being inducted as the, the new pastor in the Elim Church in Newcastle. And um, he wrote a post and I just found it absolutely incredible. And I got in touch with him, I said, do you mind if I just share this with, with the church in Tamworth this, uh, this coming weekend. He said, yeah, just do it. It's absolutely great. And this is what he says. During my time in the Royal Navy and up to the age of 25, I lived a very reckless life. Now, I know John's story and it was very, very reckless. To the extreme, he says. At that time, I never dreamed I would become a reverend. I never dreamed I would pastor a church in Wales. I never dreamed I would be a missionary in Tanzania. I never dreamed I would be married to and stay in love with the same person for over 32 years. I never dreamed I would have a wonderful and stable family. I never dreamed I would ever be on the eve of being inducted to being a pastor at Elim Church in Newcastle. I've had a life that I could never have dreamed of back then. It happened because love reached my heart. Unashamedly, I need to say I owe it all to Jesus, the Son of the living God. I'm at your feet, Lord. Thank you so much. I'm so deeply, deeply touched by that post. Not because he's my friend. Not because he's probably one of the most sincere people I know. But because that is largely my story too. No, I haven't been in the Navy, and I haven't been a missionary in Tanzania, and I've not been a pastor in Newcastle. But at the start, I could never have dreamed that I would have been on such an awesome journey as the one that I've been on and am on. And you have your stories as well. Our personal stories are such, because love has reached our hearts. And when love reaches our hearts, it causes us to do reckless things, like Carey going to India in the way that he did, or Jackie going to Malawi from Tamworth, or me becoming a missionary to the English. (laughs) Reckless. You see, his love to us causes us to love a stranger. It causes us to reach out to the unlovely and to honor the poor. And to do things which are well outside of our comfort zone or experience or our natural abilities. Kerry was not content in his day to just sit back as his colleagues did and say, if God wants to save the heathen, then he can do it without your help or mine. That's not the way that God works, you see. God doesn't work like that. He has called us to go. He has called us to take the message of his son. What a privilege this is the message of his son to the least the lost and the lonely to the young and to the old to the nations and also to our next-door neighbor and to make the main thing the main thing guys would you like to come back and join me for a moment and as you do I just want to share one last story it's a story that Rick Warren a pastor in America a great author tells of his dad In his book, The Purpose Driven Life, his dad was um, a man who had William Carey's spirit. Um, And do forgive me, I know I've shared this story before, but it just seems so relevant, again, to share this with you this morning. And this is what uh, Rick Warren writes. My father was a minister for over 50 years, serving mostly in small rural churches. He was a simple preacher, but he was a man with a mission. His favourite activity was taking teams of volunteers overseas to build church buildings for small congregations. In his lifetime, Dad built over 150 churches around the world. In 1999, my father died of cancer. In the final week of his life, the disease kept, kept him awake 24 hours a day. As he dreamed, he talked out loud about what he was dreaming. Sitting by his bedside, I learned a lot about my dad by just listening to the dreams He relived one church project after another. One night near the end, my wife, my niece and I were by his bed. Dad suddenly became very active and tried to get out of bed. Of course, he was too weak and my wife insisted that he lay back down. But he persisted in trying to get out of bed. So my wife finally asked, Jimmy, what are you trying to do? He replied, got to save one more for Jesus, got to save one more for Jesus. Jesus. Got to save one more for Jesus. And he began repeating that phrase over and over again. And during the next hour, he said that phrase probably a hundred times. Got to save one more for Jesus. As I sat by his bed with tears flowing down my cheeks, I bowed my head to thank God for my dad's faith. At that moment, dad reached out and placed his frail hand on my head and said, as if commissioning me save one more for jesus save one more for jesus rick continued and said we will not be in heaven two seconds before we cry out why did i place so much importance on things which were so temporary our life's work our careers our homes our hobbies our fancy buildings our technical gadgetry they will not matter one iota when we come to our journey's end The thing that will matter most is that we have helped God's lost children to find their way to heaven. Nothing matters more. And the cross proves that. One more for Jesus. Would you stand with me, please? Let's pray together. Lord, we we thank you for the legacy of William Carey. And we thank you for also the legacy of people like Rick and his dad. We thank you that William Carey inspired the foundations of many missionary organisations and societies. And by his example, motivated so many of your children to move beyond their comfort zones to reach out to others. Lord, I pray too that we will reach out to others because love has reached into our hearts Lord, I pray that you will challenge our apathy, take away our complacency. I pray, Lord, that you will remove our indifference and soften our hearts to feel what you feel and to weep with your tears, Lord, I pray. Lord, we know that lost people matter to you. I pray that they will matter to us too. We ask this in your name. Amen.